Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 95. I'm going to shift a little gear here from where we've been. We've been stuck in English antiquity for a while, but there's nothing wrong with that. It's as good as it gets many times. Um, but what we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, at this episode is why don't the French celebrate the Marquis de Lafayette? Lafayette, like Betsy Ross and Johnny Appleseed, is so neatly fixed in the American imagination that it is hard to see him as a human being at times. Betsy, she sows stars. Johnny plants seeds, trees. Lafayette brings French élan to the American Revolution. He is, in the collective imagination, little more than a wooden soldier with a white plume on his cocked hat. In the original production of Hamilton, David Diggs portrayed him affectionately with a comically heavy French accent and a amorous manner. A hero, yes, but of the cartoon kind, a near relation of Pepe Le Pew. In France, where Lafayette played an even larger historic role, he has come to be a more contentious figure, though. He is a kind of transposed Jerry Lewis, someone whose high reputation in one country is baffling in the land of his birth. So, while a pleasingly informal new biography by the American podcast host Mice Duncan, Here of Two Worlds, shows the officer as a hero, of both courts. So it has been suggested that he never earned a reputation in France equal to his reputation in America because he never wrote a proper book. Not long ago, his statue, put up by a, an American subscription, was moved out of the Louvre and into the nearby wooded Cour la Reine where it is nearly invisible among all the trees of the forest. Yet, both books show Lafayette to be a man of action, without the philosopher's luxury of judgment at a distance. One of those rare people who, having taken on the weight of the world, almost never put a foot the wrong way. In the crazy turnings of his time, he fought, physically fought, not merely protested with strong tweets or anything else, with pamphlets against abolitionist marketry, monarchy, sorry, colonial bondage, left-wing revolutionary terror, right-wing Bonapartist materialism, incipit imperialism, and then renowned royalist reaction. He loved American freedom and came to hate American slavery. This had less to do with his ideology than his ambiguity and instinct. He liked good people, and good people liked him. Where, among his closest friends, Hamilton had the quickest pen in the West. Benjamin, constant philosophy, sub subtly, and Washington held him 
in a great ideal of Roman Republican virtue. Lafayette himself ran on an emotional motor, excited and excitable, Duncan calls him. Lafayette sorted good people from bad people by how they struck him on the first encounter. The odd thing is that he so often got it right. Duncan's biography is written in a loose colloquial style and sometimes startles with its informality, but more often delights with its directness. A quarrel between Hamilton and Washington is likened to a marriage dissolving over an unwashed stack of dirty dishes piled high on a mountain of accumulated resentment in the kitchen. On the book, on the other hand, has a tense, disabused, elegant style of good French journalism. Read throughout, they remind us of the United States and France, which has very different accounts of the American Revolution. In America, it is a local struggle in which the British are interchangeable redcoats and the French like Fortinbras' army at the end of Hamlet appear merely just to tidy up. In France, the Americans are referred to as insurgents in a way that recalls the proxy battles of the Cold War. And the insurgency is simply an episode in a larger 18th century contest between France and England. It surely occurred to some people within the government of Louis XIV that offering French support for a revolution against abolitionist monarchy might encourage French support for the revolution against abolitionist monarchy. Closer to home, but it didn't occur to them enough. The urgencies of a confrontation between great powers were irresistible. Gilbert de Montier, the Marquis de Lafayette, was only 18 and of no particular military distinction when, in 1776, he began lobbying the French government for an American commission. Tall, handsome, and innocent, he was the icon of an ancient but not very wealthy family and had already been married off for money. He was 16, his bride, Adrienne de Noël, only 14. The affectionate marriage was a success, though. He was known in a circle for his enthusiastic manner and for his desire for glory. He cast himself throughout his life as an Enlightenment idealist who had set out, set out on a new world adventure after hearing tales of freedom and the American Revolution. Yet, given that the French were playing long game against a rival superpower in which the Americans were merely pawns, it has been suggested that the entire Lafayette expedition was an elaborate scheme, right out of the, quote, Bureau, the television series about the blundering subtitles of French intelligence, in which Lafayette was being used by an officially defunct but apparently still quite active spy service, Le Secret du Roi. In the scenario, the Comte de Burgoyne, the ex-head of Le Secret, planned to exploit Lafayette's exposition, 
to pave the way for his own arrival as a sort of generalism of the American armies, which lacked battle-tested leaders in themselves. Apparently, the Comte really did have such ambitions, though there is no evidence that the young Lafayette was aware of them, and either way, it's hard to imagine John Adams or the rest of New England hardcore standing for them. So both Duncan, the two writers, Duncan and Zagete, outline the Burgoyne intrigue. Duncan does it so in a paragraph, and Zagoyne does it at great length. Predictably, the American chronicler regards it as ridiculous, and the French one is plausible. So why wouldn't the Americans have welcomed help from such a pro as Lafayette? 200 years later, when we had the empire, the CIA, parachuted advisors into foreign countries in the same spirit, never doubting its importance, whatever the evidence to the contrary. If it was, instead, Enlightenment idealism that sent Lafayette to America, we may wonder how he was converted to it. He was well-educated, but not particularly well-read. His time in Paris had been spent mostly with the kinds of aristocrats who prefer carousing and celebrating and cheering in pubs and taverns. And Zucchini suspects that many of his ideas came from his secret membership in the Freemans, the Freemans Association. The Freemans, which developed into the Freemasons. Lafayette caroused also, but carousing can carry a credo. Freemasonry remains a source of both suspicion and glamour in France. The Vichy regime was devoted to weeding out Jews and Freemasons and trying to kill them. But it was a crucial vessel for Enlightenment thought, though. Masonic ideals stressed fraternity, liberty, and above all, the centrality of merit represented by artisans and artisans an artist more than by aristocrats. Historians and understandably are reluctant to touch too much of the Masonic influence on revolutions for fear of indulging conspiratorial national treasure style thinking, but a movement that took in everyone from Mozart to Franklin obviously had an impact. More important, its clubby fraternal side would probably have had a greater effect on the young soldier than would a long lesson in reading the encyclopedia. Although Lafayette claimed that the affiliation began after his arrival in America, there is evidence that he was a Freemason when he left France, and that at least some part of his enthusiastic reception in America was arranged by the secret brotherhood. So it is easy to underestimate, too, how much the Enlightenment was a matter not only of shared readings, but of shared experience. New rituals inspire revolutions more surely than new reasoning ever can. Just as a youth in 1968 did not have to read Mao or any other, um, any other biography to catch up on counterculture's anti-authoritarian vibe, you could catch the spirit of the Enlightenment through communal means. Absolute monarchies are not absolute in the suppression of thought. 
and Paris at that time was a kind of roving woodstock of the mind. The, the great reactionary writer Chateaubriand later wrote, half mockingly, that Lafayette, unfortunately, had only one idea in his head. His good fortune was that it was the dominant idea of his age, the idea of liberty, freedom of speech, religious tolerance, an embrace of science, erotic curiosity. All were part of the idea. The revolt against the spiritual authority of the church was even more urgent than the resistance to the abolitionist-type state. Lafayette was, as Sukuni tells us, a disciple and a patient of Franz Mesmer, a hypnotist who extravagantly entertained Paris to get mesmerized, and from whom we get the word in the English language, mesmerized. Mesmer, Mesmer's daily demonstrations were in their way a virtual rebellion against a neatly regime view of the mind as was anything in Voltaire. And remember, Franklin tried to debunk Mesmer's daily demonstrations for years, and he railed against him. Mesmer gave Lafayette a sort of post-hypnotic suggestion for preventing mal de mer during his long voyage to America, which involved clutching the mast of the ship, a plan stymied when the mass turned out to be covered with tar. But when it came to the government intriguers, Lafayette was surely manipulating as much as being manipulated. He wanted the mission. The the forces that impelled Lafayette were various, cynical, great power calculation, personal plotting of the part of Burgoyne and others in Le Secret, a genuine wave of generational common feeling, and not least that wind that scatters young men through the world to seek their fortunes, a proto-bronic force that made him think that if revolutions and great wars were happening on the other side of the world, then the other side of the world was the place to be, and I think Lafayette developed this philosophy. So Lafayette arrived in America in the late summer of 1777. After a brief visit to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, where he got himself awarded the commission as a general, the Americans clearly saw an advantage in integrating themselves with someone close to the French court. And Lafayette made his way to Washington's quarters in Valley Forge. He and the Prussian drill master, Baron de von Steuben managed to re, <coughs> uh, reignite Washington's demoralized armies, while at least in a good scene for the ministries, correcting each other's broken English. Lafayette, plunging himself right into the heart of the action, quickly managed to lose a battle. Throughout the war, he was always <coughs> proposing actions with little strategic point. Let's take the West Indies, he would say, flippantly. Um, Fight the British in Rhode Island, launch a raid on Ireland, and Northern England. So what Washington, on the whole grasp, but Lafayette did not, is that in a national war of liberation, the trick is to wait out the invader, which requires the ability to sustain a certain 
casualty rate without losing your army totally. The other trick, and here Lafayette's role was critical, is to have the assistance of a foreign power. The truth, neatly concealed in most elementary American textbooks, is that though the Americans did the fighting, the French war engine won the battles. At Saratoga, it was the French artillery that made the difference. At Yorktown, the French fleet, which Lafayette Circle had helped conjole into joining the struggle, proved totally decisive in the end. There is a long-term historical irony here. The American Revolution was essentially a French triumph, which the American imagination turned into an American victory, albeit with some gallant support from the French. Two centuries later, the liberation of France was turned by the French imagination into a French victory, albeit with some gallant support from those Americans again. Each myth has become essential to the national ideal. We beat the British, they expelled the Germans, and the heroicism, if not the victory, in both cases was indigenous. The French came, conquered, and left. It was the Americans who suffered in the cold. The American army in the Second World War, though badly mauled in the Ardennes forest, was largely intact, while the French resistance was martyred. The the crucial question is what led Admiral de Grasse, the commander of the French fleet based in the West Indies, to bring his forces up the coast to the Chesapeake, armed and ready to fight? Certainly, the French decision to support the Americans was ambivalent, and the first ships and troops they sent were adequate. De Grasse had sailed with 40 vessels, not, it seems, because he had a special enthusiasm for the American cause, but because he was actually something rare in the French Navy until that time, an efficient officer who followed orders. And the French orders were, in turn, the culmination of relentless lobbying by Lafayette and his confreres. Once de Grasse's battleships arrived at the Chesapeake, victory was totally assured. Without them, it would not have been. Lafayette, on his return to France in 1779, was a hero with all the glamour of revolution clinging to his cockade. As charismatic as Chev's in the 60s in Cuba, but with better character. When the French Revolution began in 1879, it was inevitable that he would be the popular choice to lead it. Shortly after the storming of the Bastille, he was made commander of the Paris Militia, which soon became the National Guard, cunningly positioned as neither royal nor republican. He was des- <clears throat> he also designed its uniforms, combining the red and blue colors of Paris with the white of the Bourbon kings, signifying a potential marriage of popular sentiment and royal lineage, and providing what are still the colors of the French flag even today. That summer, Lafayette could easily have tried to seize power for himself, and some people expected him to actually try to do so. But of all the lessons that Lafayette had learned in America, perhaps the most important came from the general, George Washington, whose love for the exercise of authority came with no particular appetite for power. 
When Washington was in charge, he was in charge. But he had no desire to be in charge for good. And once someone else was in charge, he had no difficulty accepting that charge had passed over. Until recently, this remained the American way. There were classical modes for this approach. The Roman dictator, who went back to his farm after leading his people, was the most familiar. But since then, the idea of refusing political power after the successful pursuit of battle was almost unheard of. Had Oliver Cromwell been capable of it, British history would be very different. One reason that Lafayette remains a controversial figure in France is that despite praising the Constitution of the United States as the most perfect system that he ever existed, he thought it was impractical to implant such pure republicanism in France. His basic insight was not very different from Charles de Gaulle and the founding of the Fifth Republic around an exceptionally powerful presidency. France, an ancient, highly centralized country with a strong taste for ritual, seems to require a visible symbol of order at its center, and de Gaulle provided that form. Lafayette's dedication to the practical ideal of a constitutional monarchy for France met with repeated failure, however, partly because the Republicans could never entirely accept the necessity of a figurehead king, and partly because the kings he tried to counsel could never really accept being only figureheads. This put him in an awkward and, at times, a near-fatal position. A radical to the royalist, a royalist to the radicals. He was simply a realist in the relations with both. The most disastrous of Lafayette's attempts to make the monarch act like a mensch was his first. As the head of the National Guard, Lafayette was responsible for the security of the royal family. It is often forgotten that, for most of the early years after the 1789 revolution, the Republican consensus favored a constitutional monarchy, however, uneasily fixed with the mob at Versailles placing the cap of the classical freeman on the king's head. He let it stay there for a time, declaring his loyalty to the new republic and even to the rights of man, the revolutionary document whose first draft Lafayette had penned with the help of Jefferson, then resident in Paris. But in June 1791, Louis XVI and his family sneaked out of Paris in an effort to reconnect with royalist forces and help to reverse the revolution. Lafayette must be feeling quite embarrassed, the ungrateful monarch gloated, the morning after the escape. It ended badly, of course, with the royal family's quick recapture, but Lafayette took all the blame. George Danton, one of the leaders of the Jacobin radicals, wrote of him, the commander general promised on his head that the king would not leave. We need the person of the king or the head of the commander general. Having retaken the person of the king, they were still greedy for the head of the commander general. It was the flight of the king, for which Lafayette was wrongly held responsible, that, through a series of falling dominoes, unleashed the reign of terror. The Jacobins did what radical purists do in power. They always do. First, they killed their enemies. 
and then their friends, then their relatives, and then one another. Danton himself lost his head, literally, to his rival, Robespierre. There was, as is often pointed out, plenty of violence on all sides. What was new about the Jacobins was a still deliberate, gloating Satanism that is still shocking to read about. In this spirit, it's found in Lafayette's sister, mother, and grandmother. They were all killed on that same evening. All of his family was killed. And he was made to watch from the trumbles as the others were decapitated. He watched his own family decapitated. It was from this form of terror that the Jacobins passed on their successors. Stalin, as one of the Soviets, historians have written, admired and expanded Robespierre's practice of prosecuting. Robespierre was instrumental in cutting the heads off of uh, Lafayette's uh, relatives. So Danton was forced to sit and watch while 16 of his colleagues were murdered before, at last, he himself was killed in the high Jacobin fashion. For Lafayette, the choice was never clear between radical pursuits and reactionary royalists. The choice was always, as Thomas Paine put it in his speech against executing the king, between humanity and cruelty, but it was clear that Lafayette would have to flee France, and in August of 1792, he did just that. Expecting to be given sanctuary in the Austrian Netherlands, he was instead arrested in, in the Netherlands, offered his freedom in exchange for French army secrets, which he was not about to reveal, and then locked up in the prison at one of the worst prisons in the Netherlands. He would know and he would experience this and be locked up for the next five years. The conditions of his imprisonment were against the usual rules of aristocratic detainment, extremely harsh, including months kept away from books, sunlight, and friends. Lafayette later said that solitary confinement could lead only to madness, adding dryly that he He had not found it to be the means of reformation since he was imprisoned for wishing to revolutionize the people against despots and the aristocracy, and passed his solitude in thinking upon it without ever coming out to be corrected. So it was, bizarrely, the ascension of Napoleon that finally freed Lafayette, Napoleon, having boldly been beaten in the Austrian army at the Battle of Rivoli in 1797. Napoleon demanded the return of all French prisoners as a matter of honor, though he seems also to have imagined that he could lure Lafayette back into his service. Lafayette, refusing to take any political role in Napoleon's empire, retired right after. In Washingtonian fashion, to his wife's family estate. Napoleon was oddly pragmatic about this. Blood was something he drank in big drafts, in the suffering and in the horror of total war. He wasn't personally vindictive, and if one stayed away from his intrigue, as Lafayette did, he wouldn't pursue you. For the Jacobins, with their totalitarian imagination, noncompliance equated to resistance. 
For Napoleon, a classic authoritarian, submission was best, but silence was fine. Lafayette, through non-complacency, withdrew from the public realm until the dictator finally fell. The stories of public figures have a way of ending tragically. If you aren't killed by your times, you're invariably, you, will, you will invariably outlive them, and the values you fought for over many years seem to be tarnished. But Lafayette, even after his years of imprisonment, and then his resistance to Napoleon, and then to the Bourbon restoration that followed, ended well. He was offered the government the governorship of Louisiana Territory by Thomas Jefferson after the American president bought it. Shades of Borgoy's scheme and during a tour of America, believe it or not. This all happened during an American tour in 1824. And when he was there, he was greeted like a rock star from New Orleans to Boston. So there is evidence that Lafayette briefly owned a slave in 1777 a fact that he never referred to afterward, seemingly out of shame. But by the time of his 1724 trip, he was resolutely anti-slavery. And meeting with a representative of Haiti, he vigorously making the argument for abolition with his Virginia friends. His traveling companion, Auguste Levasseur, wrote that Lafayette never missed an opportunity to defend the right which all men without exception have to liberty. Both Frenchmen went away, went away convinced, as many were at that moment, that slavery under the pressure of public opinion would not survive long. They were totally wrong, in part because of another development Lafayette witnessed on his tour, the political rise of Andrew Jackson and of a populist pro-slavery movement, Fanny Wright, a Scottish reformer and Lafayette's likely lover who accompanied him throughout the tour. His wife had died in 1807. So he got up, Sophie got so fed up with American hypocrisy that she left the Marquis to find a utopian community. So at one point, Lafayette and Lavoisier encountered a group of Jacksonian diehards who had threatened violence after the Quincy Adams squeaked in as president. When the Frenchman asked, how do you lay siege to the capital? And this is really pre prevalent even today. How do you lay siege with the capital? That 18, what, 1812, 1813, and then today, what well, we just had the insurrection in January 6th. The Jacksonians explained, maybe the Trumpians explained, that they had no plans to do so. Now that it is settled, all we have to do is obey. The consequences of a bad election are quickly obliviated. The intensity of social life in America is one of the keenest of Lassier's observations. Political parties he initiated are made up of people who are used to playing with others. Mobs are made up of isolated people suddenly thrust together to meet and greet becomes a riot. The Marquet's story was not quite over yet. As the revolution of 1830 against the restored reactionary monarchy of Charles X began, that's the one that produced 
Delacroix's Liberty Leading the People and repopularized many, <coughs> many French anthems. Lafayette, through now an old man, was called on by the only person capable of leading the Republican forces. Once again, he was urged to take up power himself, and once again he declined, hoping against hope and against all reasons. Many of his exasperated chronicles had believed that a new king from another dynasty, in this case from the supposedly populist Orléans family, might function as a national symbol by expanding popular sovereignty. And once again he failed. In the years before his death, in 1834, Lafayette, while serving both in the Chamber of Deputies and as mayor of his local commune, denounced the new king for recanting on his promises of reform. It would take another revolution in 1848 to rid France of its monarchical illusions, and then yet one more in 1871 to establish something like the foundation of a resilient republic. So despite the failure of the 1830 revolution, Lafayette was seen as a leader of the insipid liberal revolutions in Spain, Portugal, Belgium, and above all, Poland, which became a kind of second America in his imagination. This universalist vision is now viewed with skepticism in France, the duty to intervene, which Lafayette certainly believed in and in some ways even pioneered, now looks a little dubious. So where Duncan, the American biographer, ends his book on a note of exhaustion, quoting Samuel Telegraph Morse's tribute to Lafayette as a constant beacon of freedom, a tower amid the waters, his foundation upon a rock. He moves not with ebb and flow of a stream. And then the French biographer ends on a drier note, querying Lafayette's cosmopolitan embrace as an elitist vision, not to say one vaguely imperialistic. Yet what perhaps fascinates me and most in the reading of Lafayette's story today is the extraordinary force of his moral instincts. He was not, in fact, a fixed tower with a firm foundation of nameable beliefs, but a flexible improviser of possibilities picking up his sword in the most wildly different circumstances to fight for a a nebulous but essential ideal of human liberty. Routinely castigated as self-centered and naive, he was right again and again and again in the essentials of his judgment. He somehow always kept himself safe from the allure of perpetual excuses for cruelty. The The despot of the unfortunate excesses style of rationalization that sooner or later lames us all. He refused in every sense to lose his head to the abolitionist of any party. Temperament alone is not everything in politics. Alexander Hamilton, perhaps Lafayette's closest friend, wrote down the principles of government in a crisp and classical style, and we can still read them. Yet, the less coherent romantic imagination of which Lafayette is an early and ideal example can sometimes accomplish by empathy and affection and warmth what ideology cannot. 
History shows us no more lovable a man than Lafayette. He didn't create a utopian state or start a reign of terror like we just saw on January the 6th, or even conquer a country, or take power in his own country and lay down the law. But nobody did more to help secure French liberty rather than merely imagine it. And nobody did more for the best side of the American democratic ideal. Lafayette didn't write a philosophical book or think up a stream or even win a big battle. He was just a terrific friend to all good causes, and we need this today more than ever. So we're quite lucky to have known him as a guy that helped America become America. Greg Perry, the historic preservationist, thanks for listening.